Heavenly Father, we ask that you would turn to us and have mercy on us now, as you always do to those who love your name. O Lord, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit amongst us this morning. Send him to your servants and quicken our hearts and help us to see wondrous things in your word. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue to look at the book of Colossians together. Uh, This is a letter that was written by uh, the Apostle Paul uh, to the church in Colossae. It wasn't a church that he himself planted, but he was aware of it uh, through the ministry of a friend, Epaphras, and he has been writing to the people in Colossae, encouraging them to remain firm to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, There has been some sort of heresy that has arisen within the church. Uh, We're not given all the details, but there are some false teachers who have come into the church in Colossae and have been trying to lead people astray. And the things that we've been looking at, uh, particularly in the last few weeks that they were being taught, were they were being taught special diets, that if you want to be a true Christian, then you need to observe particular food and drinking habits or particular days, diets and days. They were encouraging people to observe particular days, religious festivals. If you want to be a true Christian, you have to observe these festivals. And we saw last week that these people, these false teachers were coming in and teaching uh, that you had to follow them and their religious experiences. They, were, they had obviously uh, had some sort of contact with what they called angels. Uh, they were engaged in the worship of angels. They were having special religious experiences. And the Apostle Paul was pointing out to the Colossian church that you do not go after these people. And last week we were encouraged that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is all we need. We do not need special experiences, that we have a sufficient relationship in Jesus Christ with God. And so we do not need diets and days, and we do not need special experiences. And so now the Apostle Paul starts to move into the part of his letter where he gives us specific commands as to what we are to do. We've been told what we're not to do, observe special diets, observe special days, follow after false teachers. What are we to do if Jesus Christ is our saviour? If he has cancelled the written code, if he has cancelled the debt that was against us, we are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ, then what are we to do? And that is where we come to chapter 3, where we are told what we should do. And what is that in chapter 3, verse 1? I encourage you to have a Bible before you. Open it up to chapter 3, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. What are we to seek? What are we to do? Well, we're to set our hearts or to seek things would be another translation that you can have of verse 1 rather than set your hearts. To set our hearts or seek things above, not earthly things instead. Now, what's above? What is he referring to when he says that we're meant to set our hearts, set our minds on things above? Well, of course, that is heaven is a reference there. And who is in heaven? Well, he tells us, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Heaven is not empty. No, the Lord Jesus Christ is there and he sits at God's right hand. And so we're not to just set our minds on heaven itself. We're meant to set our minds on the one who is in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does it look to set, and what does it look like to set our minds on things above, to seek what is above, to seek the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it doesn't mean that we withdraw from the earth, from the world, from society. We start a little commune. Well, 
Des Moines Baptist Church will all live in unison with one another and not go out into the big bad world. No, the Apostle Paul wants us to interact with the world. And we see that by the rest of the chapter. He gives us instructions on how we are to relate to people outside or, and also inside the church. In verses 5 to 11, uh, we look at the way we shouldn't treat other people. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And that goes on. Uh, uh, in the following verses and then we'll, in verse 12 and following it tells us how we should treat people so we shouldn't treat people this way but we should treat people this way the Apostle Paul is telling us in verse 12 therefore as God's chosen people holy and dearly loved clothe yourselves with compassion kindness humility gentleness and patience and so he goes on he's telling us how to live within the world and then he goes on in verse 18 and following to tell us how we should live in the home with very specific commands to wives, to husbands in verse 19, to children in verse 20, to fathers and parents in verse 21, and then to employees, although they're called slaves here, but we can make an application today uh, to us as employees from verse 22 uh, down to verse 25. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, masters, he's talking about employers, those who have charge over others who work for them, how we are to treat such people. And then he goes on to speak about religious exercises in the world from verses 2 through to verse 6. And then from verse 7 of chapter 4 to pretty much the end of the book, he talks about interactions between people within the church. And so there's all these instructions that are given as to how we are to live in this world. So when it says set your minds on things above, that does not mean that we, we remove ourselves completely from this world. No, it must mean something else because the Apostle Paul expects us to still live within the world. So what does it mean to set our minds, to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at God's right hand? Well, of course, it does mean that we should think more of the Lord Jesus Christ than we probably do, that we should be more conscious of him and, and thinking about who he is and meditating upon him and finding out much more about him. But I think it's more than that that the Apostle Paul wants us to do. I think he wants us to have a mind set that is focused on Jesus Christ. Everything that we do in this world should be affected by our understanding of who Jesus is and particularly in relationship to us. The way that you could translate uh, this word that is in verse 2, uh, set your minds, the word that's translated as set there in your English translations, it can be uh, the idea of consideration. You could translate it as give careful consideration. Give careful consideration to things above and particularly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or it can be describing an attitude, that you should have a particular attitude. Or it can be even used in reference to taking someone else's side. So that when you set your mind on something, it means taking the side of the one that you're setting your mind upon. And this is what I think we're meant to be doing with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 1 it says that you, uh, when it says set your hearts on things above, it means to seek. And that's what we're doing when we have a mindset of Jesus Christ. When our mindset is Jesus, then everything is affected not just we're having more thoughts of Jesus. No, everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we think is affected by Jesus because he is our mindset. He is our attitude. He is the one whose side we take, which of course means that we leave some earthly things behind altogether. Some things in this world we stop thinking about because Jesus doesn't want us thinking about such things and particularly false teaching that he's been talking about in the previous chapter, and certain sins. We leave those behind because our mindset 
is now on Christ. Now, how can we illustrate this for you? How can we illustrate having a mindset that is focused on Jesus Christ? Well, possibly the best illustration of how our minds can be set on Jesus Christ is the God-given illustration of marriage. The God-given illustration of marriage. Marriage changes the way we think about everything. Our mindset, once we become married, is on our spouse and our new home, our new household that is formed by the marriage that we have taken on. And so we have a new attitude. Everything is considered now in relation to the spouse and many things are forgotten once you get married. What do I mean by forgotten or abandoned? Well, some bad behaviour to start with is usually abandoned once you become married, whether it be untidiness or bad grooming habits. Those things start to go out the window. It may have been okay to live like a slob around mummy. Mummy, I thought it's okay uh, for you to live that way. And you just do what you want, honey. I'll tidy up after you. But once you get married, your mindset changes. And your spouse leads you to abandon some of those things that you formerly did, uh, the way that you lived within the home. And bad speech can be altered as well, and certain words drop out of your vocabulary altogether once you get married. Uh, certain possessions are rem removed, certain clothes are thrown out altogether. It's a famous story in our home of my father during the 70s. He dyed all his white T-shirts purple, very dark purple. When he got married, those purple shirts disappeared from the home. There was a new mindset when it came to fashion, and he was willing, I'm not sure how willing, but ultimately willing to let them disappear. The old easy chair may disappear. Even your house may change. You thought your apartment was a lovely apartment, but suddenly your spouse no longer thinks that is the case and starts to look at other real estate. It may be that spending practices are over. Regular barista-made coffees on the way to work each morning are suddenly frowned upon. And investments can change. Pokemon cards are no longer considered a wise investment of money. Long-term investment, says one member of the household. The other member says, I think we should look at term deposits as an investment rather than Pokemon cards. There's a mindset that's changed once you get married. Leisure hours are reduced TV shows abandoned altogether. You never find out what happens in season 10 because you never get around to watching it because someone doesn't want to watch it in the home. Uh, music taste can be altered, at least when someone else is present or in, when the, whether they're in the car or in the home. Social, social media may be limited or even blocked altogether. Favourite holiday spots are no longer visited. Suddenly you're in art galleries rather than at the beach. It's because your mindset has changed and you're adopting the mindset of your spouse. Work is altered, number of hours you do can be reduced, what you even do for work may be changed, and where you work can be changed based on where your spouse wants to live and where they want to go. Certain relationships are reduced, some friends may even be unfriended when you get married, and family members, of course, have less contact with you, particularly if you were living at home just before you got married, and there's less dependence upon them. The other spouse doesn't like when you call daddy every time there's a problem or go after mummy and find her sympathy. The spouse wants you to come to them first and foremost. And so there's a mindset that changes when you get married. Now, why does that happen? Why does marriage 
change your mindset about so many things in your life as a single person? Well, what happens when you get married? You have died to your old life of singleness. You have died to that life of singleness. You have been raised to a new life that you've never had before. Your life is now hidden in another person. The two have become one. There's no more I. There's we from now on. This is what we will do. This is the house we will buy, not the house that I will buy. The two have become one. Your spouse is now your life, so to speak. Your new self, two becoming one, cannot function without your spouse. And you long to be together and appear together. You want to spend time with one another. You don't really want to go to gatherings without the other person. So, of course, your mind is primarily set on your spouse. Every thought is affected by your spouse. Now, this may sound horrible to the single person. The description that I've given of how much a spouse changes your life down to your very thoughts. But marriage can be a great blessing to a person. How? Well, marriage often makes you a better person. Many, things of, the th- many of the things that you forego when you get married are actually bad. The grooming habits that you thought were quite acceptable are probably worth getting rid of, not just for your spouse's sake, but for everybody's sake that comes into into contact with you. Your work habits, your overwork or your overeating, the things that your spouse wants you to work upon, getting rid of them probably is going to make you a healthier person. And of course, marriage doesn't just make you a better person as you get rid of things, you actually get new joys. You've got a new hobby. Tell the young people here that a good spouse is better than any video game you can ever play. They're a great hobby. They're great fun to be around, and there's great joy to have with them. And we saw that in the book of Song of Songs. We didn't read a lot of the book of Song of Songs, but we see there in the book of Song of Songs that there's this heart that yearns for the spouse. All night long, it says in verse 1, all night long of chapter 3, Song of Songs, all night long on my bed I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. There's this desire to be with the spouse because there is joy found in the company of the other. And, of course, there's many, many benefits of being married. Uh, Your spouse is a great support. Two are better than one. For household chores, it's wonderful uh, to be able to have somebody else around to help out with things, whether it be outside the house in the garden or inside the house. It's better for financial support, better for mental support to have a spouse that you've got someone that you can talk to and debrief with about the things that you may be going through. So then a marriage changes our mind. It changes our mind. We have this new mindset about everything. How does this then, this overview that I've given us of marriage, help us to understand Colossians 3, 1 to 4? Because that's what we're looking at this morning primarily. We aren't looking at marriage per se. It's not even really mentioned in the text until further down when there's instructions given to husbands and wives. Why does this overview of marriage that I've gone through this morning help us as we look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, and how we are to set our minds on Jesus Christ? Well, just as the married person's mindset factors the spouse into everything, so the Christian's mindset, the Christian's mindset factors Christ into everything, including removing some things from your life, 
leaving some earthly things behind as you meditate upon heavenly things and how those heavenly things and Jesus Christ who is in heaven affects the way you live in this world. Christ is considered. A new attitude is taken towards everything when you become a Christian. And we join Christ's side of things, just like a new spouse will join the other spouse's side on things. We jump over to Christ's side and our minds are renewed with new thoughts taken on and old thoughts dismissed. Now you may be saying, really? Everything? Is everything now factored in to Christ? Yes. Your new groom, when you become a Christian, Jesus, he cares about everything you do with your life. Everything. No corner is left untouched by him. Jesus cares about how you behave in the home, whether you clean up after yourself, whether you help with the washing up. Jesus cares. Jesus cares about how we speak and may drop some words from our vocabulary that he does not like. Jesus cares about your possessions, the things that you own, and some of them may actually be left behind. Those pirated DVDs that you had no problem with before you got married to Jesus, suddenly you're throwing them in the bin. Jesus cares about how you spend your money and how you invest it. Jesus cares about how you spend your leisure time, including the number of hours you devote to recreation. Jesus cares about what you watch on TV or on the internet. Jesus ultimately has the remote control. It should be in his hands. And the keyboard should be in his hands. Jesus helps us choose our video games, our books, and our music. Jesus cares about our holidays how long our holidays are, where we go, and what we do when we're on holidays. Jesus cares about what you do for a job, how you do it, how you treat your boss, how you treat other employees, and he cares about how many hours you give over to your employment. Jesus cares about your friends, who you associate with, what you do with them, and he cares about your family, and he even gives you a whole new family of brothers and sisters in Christ and expects you to spend time with them. Jesus becomes our, our new mindset when we become a Christian and affects everything. But you may say, why does that have to be the case? Why can't I become a Christian and Jesus as my new spouse just satisfies all the desires that I've had before I became a Christian? That I've got all these desires that I have, and now my new spouse, who has all power, because he sits at God's right hand, should just be willing to give me everything that I possibly desire. Why do my desires have to change? Why do I have to take his side now in things? Well, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4 tells us why. What has happened to us when we become a Christian? We have died to our old life of unbelief. We see that in verse 3. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We have died to our old life, all those earthly desires that we had before. We have died to them, and we've been raised to a new life that we've never had before. That's in verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. We've not only died with Christ, which was also referred to back in chapter 2, verse 20, since you died with Christ... We've died with Christ, but we've also been raised to life. What happens when you, become, uh, when you get married? You die to your life of singleness, and you start a new life of togetherness. And that's what's happened when you become a Christian. You die to your old life, and you have a new life of togetherness with Jesus Christ. 
Your life is now hidden in Christ, in Jesus. We see that in verse 3. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The two have become one. You're inseparable from Jesus now. You can't have your life and Jesus just funds it. No, he is with you in your life now if you've become a Christian. And Jesus becomes our very life itself. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, he is everything to you. He feeds you with life and he is your life. All that you want to do consists of what Christ wants to do. Your life now revolves around him. We see people who we can say, oh, that is their life. Whatever hobby they do, whatever sport they may be engaged in, their work, it may be their life. What is the Christian's life? It is Jesus Christ. Jesus is our very life. And we long to be with him. That's why our mindset changes so much, because we want him. Our heart yearns for him and desires him. That's what we see in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory, where our mindset is on him because we love him and we want him, and we're looking forward to that day when he will return, and we will appear with him, will be raised up to meet him in the air and go and be with him for eternity in heaven. And so, of course, our mindset changes. Of course it's not we just live our non-Christian life with our non-Christian desires and now he just funds all those desires and makes sure they happen for us because the world hasn't been satisfying them for us well enough. No, he now changes our minds about everything and it makes sense because he is our everything. He is our very life. Now such a marriage may sound horrible to non-Christians, but I pity the non-Christian. Why? Because marriage to Christ actually makes us better people. The things that we let go, those earthly things that we don't consider anymore, they were unhelpful for us and for our souls. The sins that we loved so much were unhelpful for us. Those false teachers that we loved listening to, they are unhelpful for us. And so getting married to Jesus actually makes us a better person. More than that, Getting married to Jesus actually gives us a new joy, a lasting joy that nothing in our old life, our life of singleness without Christ, could bring. Jesus is the best hobby you can have. He's better than all the hobbies offered in this world. Jesus is endlessly fascinating. Even in verse 1, I could preach a whole sermon just based on verse 1, but we wouldn't get through the rest of the book very quickly, and I don't want to tire you out too much. But just consider what we read in verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We could have a whole sermon on the fact that Jesus is raised and we are raised with him, co-raised with him. We could have a whole sermon on the fact that Christ is seated that he's in session, he's no more work to do, he's at rest at the right hand of God. We can have a whole sermon about Jesus being at the right hand of God and what that means and what's it mean to have a right hand and that it's God's right hand. Jesus is endlessly fascinating. That's just in one verse. We could go on and on and on unpacking it all. And so Jesus is this great joy for us. The non-Christian doesn't know that joy the endless fascination we can have with our heavenly groom. And so, of course, earthly things pale next to Jesus if we are a Christian. Lemuel's song says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth 
will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The things of the earth grow strangely dim, just automatically, because we have this new joy in Jesus Christ, our groom. And marriage to Christ comes with incredible support and help. That's why I pity the non-Christian as well. Our spouse changes our mind, but he helps us and supports us in ways we can never get from this world, from anyone else. Our spouse sits at God's right hand with all power, and he loves us more than we even love ourselves. He's the greatest support we could ever have. And of course, the greatest support he's given us is saving us from the eternal punishment that we deserve in hell for our sins. He has lifted us from the grave and set us upon the rock, which is himself. So I pity the non-Christian. They don't know the benefits of being married to Jesus, the way that you're a better person, the way that you have a joy that surpasses all joys known in this world, and the way that you have someone who supports you unlike anyone can give in this world. So if you are a Christian, I ask you, is your mindset Jesus? Is Christ your mindset? Does Jesus govern all things in your life? I fear some of you have declared marriage to Christ, but you live like you're still single. Your mind is set on earthly things, And you simply expect Jesus to give you more and more of the earthly things. You behave the same. You speak the same. You own the same things. You spend your money in the same ways. You watch the same TV shows. You read the same books. You play the same video games. You listen to the same music. You work the same. And you associate with the same people. If that's you, stop being a hypocrite about a sham marriage. You're not married to Jesus Christ. Your marriage to Christ is like the teenager who thinks that some celebrity loves them. That that celebrity, when they wrote their song, their songs, their love songs, they were directed to them. But the teenager doesn't live in the mansion. The teenager's not on tour with the celebrity. It's a sham relationship. It's a dream relationship. That's not actuality in real life. Nothing's changed in the teenager's life. The celebrity doesn't know them at all. Don't do that with Jesus Christ. Don't say, I'm in relationship with him, and then find on that last day, when you say, Lord, Lord, he says, away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Don't let that be the case. Recognise that you're still single, that your mindset has not been on Christ and your life is still the same as you were when you were a non-Christian before you had this phony marriage to Christ. Recognise you're still single. Jesus is not your spouse and he will not save you from hell and destruction which you rightfully deserve for your sin. Recognise that now and then come to Christ in repentance and faith. Trust that Jesus Christ died for you. And then love him as your spouse and get your mind set on him rather than on the things of this world. Have him as your groom and join with us at this church 
and with all believers, true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are part of his bride and married to him, join with us happily setting our minds on him. We're not unhappy in setting our minds on him. We happily set our minds on him because he is our heavenly husband who sits at God's right hand. Join with us in rejoicing in the way Jesus changes our minds, including getting rid of our bad practices. We joyfully want them set aside as our mindset changes. Rejoicing in Jesus as a new hobby who provides endless delights. Rejoicing in Jesus for the help he provides, the support he gives in whatever situation you are in, in this life, and then, of course, the support that he will give us for all eternity in the next life. All of us in this room who are true believers in Jesus Christ, we are married. Some of you may say, well, I'm not married. But no, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are married and have the benefits of marriage with Jesus Christ. The little earthly marriages here on earth, my marriage to Jill, I really do love her and I enjoy having a relationship with her. But she's just a little pale shadow of the true marriage that you can all enjoy, which is with Jesus Christ the prince of princes, the king of kings and lord of lords. We have a prince who sits at God's right hand, who's promised to take us as his wife, to have and to hold for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. And how long does Jesus live? How long will we live if we're in true relationship with him? Eternity. Forever. That's how long Jesus has promised to love us, to look after us as his bride. So, of course, let us all do what verses 1 and 2 tell us to do in Colossians chapter 3. We have a heavenly groom. So then let us set our hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, setting our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Let's come to our groom in prayer now. Let us speak with our heavenly husband. Lord Jesus, our loving groom, we praise you as the one who rose and sits at God's right hand. Forgive us for not setting our minds on you as we should and being captivated by earthly things rather than captivated by you. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to consider you in all that we do and rejoice in you as our groom. And Lord Jesus, we ask if anyone sitting here this morning is not married to you, May they repent of their sins and trust in you and join in the joy of your bride here on earth. And we pray this in your name. Amen.